0: My name's Hans, I get to serve as one of the pastors here, and we are trucking along in John again. So, familiar passage probably for many when we think of Peter's denials, but I wonder how many times you might have been in a situation where you knew you needed to say something, <clears throat> you knew you should have said something, for example, and you just didn't. You said, I, I, know, I know what's true and I know what's right, but you, you didn't stand. You didn't stand up. You didn't stand out. Uh, You did not speak what was true. Maybe you hear a classmate mock somebody and you know you should address it, but you're afraid of addressing it. You don't know how others might view you. You're not really sure what that might do for your street cred. Someone close to you maybe reveals their feelings about another person, even another family member, and lets you know how they've always felt about them. Well, I always knew that He wouldn't make anything of himself. I always knew that he really was a little off. I always knew she wasn't going to marry the right person. I could just tell. And you're shocked. Once you kind of see the depths of somebody's heart, you didn't know it was there, you're kind of shocked you step back and you're so stunned, you're not even really sure how to respond. And then you often, if you're like me, you might talk yourself out of it. Well, they're older, they're this, they're that, I'm not really sure. Maybe while caring for your neighbor, you hear your neighbor's opinion of another neighbor. And you think, I could probably speak into that with a level of truth. But you don't, because you don't want to not be neighborly, because we talk ourselves into thinking being neighborly is not speaking truth, I guess. It only gets multiplied when the issues are closer to God's heart on the matter. It only gets multiplied when. When we have those moments to step in and we don't. On the other side, people like to step into almost everything and step into many things that then get stuck on their shoes when they realize they've said too much. It's interesting that our text today focuses on both Peter and Jesus because Peter was often a guy that would get himself into trouble for what he did. He would always do, do the, do the like he, would, he would just be a little, as we would say, a little extra Peter was just a little extra as that disciple. He was the extra disciple. He would always kind of push. He'd just chop the dude's ear off. He was the one that was sure that Jesus wasn't going to uh, have to die. He, he was sure that he wasn't ever going to deny Jesus. Like, there's just no doubt. So Peter, with a man of great confidence in his own ability, also seems to wilt. We're not familiar with that, are we? We don't know what that's like. We do often as Christians, have misplaced confidence in our ability to stand firm. And we think that we will. And then we go, God, if you just give me one more chance to do that thing, I, I promise you I'll do it. I promise you I'll stand firm. I promise you, right, that I'll do that. And we don't. And what we get to go to this morning is just how our Savior Does. Our Savior does. How does Jesus contrast with us? How does Jesus contrast with us when it comes to our ability to speak truly and accurately, even in the most difficult of moments? Truly and accurately, even in the most difficult of moments. If you're already there in your Bibles, John chapter 18, verses 12 through 27, we've heard it read. Uh, if you have a device, you can use that. But, you know, paper or screen, what you have, uh, let's go there. We're going to see, uh, we'll call this a sandwich story. Mark, the Gospel of Mark does this, but a sandwich story essentially is like this. It's not something that you eat, but it has, it, it does two things on, on, on both sides of it and then one thing in the middle, right, like a sandwich. And what we see in John's telling here is that Peter shows up at the beginning and at the end, and Jesus shows up in the middle. And as we as the scene moves, the spotlight moves from how Peter operates to how Jesus operates to how Peter operates, we get a, a clearer picture of how, again, different Jesus is. That's one of the things we will see throughout John chapter 18, is just the difference of Jesus. Last week we did it with the idea of let's just, Let's just look at that and be in awe. Today we do it with the idea and how we speak of truth. And you may think that where we're headed is just like, oh yeah, yeah, just make that promise to God that you'll stand firm when you need to. That's actually not where we're headed at all. Uh, We are going to see Peter's weaknesses for sure, but we see Jesus's strength. And that's actually what we need in these moments. So how does Jesus contrast with us when it comes to our ability to speak truly and accurately, even in the hardest moments, John 18, 12 through 27. Really, there are two witnesses here. If you know John, John's a book about witnesses. He uses that word witness, bear witness a lot. It shows up throughout the gospel of John. And we have, again, this repetition of bearing witness, which just means to talk about what you've seen, talk about what is true. And so we have this opportunity for Peter to bear witness, And we have this opportunity for Jesus to bear witness. And both of them do it quite differently. We have Peter, the cowardly witness, and Jesus, the faithful witness. We're going to look at both of those as we go through. Okay, so we're actually going to kind of take this story. We're going to take the bread of the sandwich first and then look at the meat of the sandwich. Peter, the cowardly witness. We're going to start in John 18, 12 through 14. Okay, we see what's going on here. The band of soldiers and their captain, they they arrest Jesus. Remember, he was in the garden of uh, the Gethsemane, or Mount of Olives. He's passed over the Mount Kedron. Now they're taking him, and they led him to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. Now, we'll hear different high priest language. It seems like in this day and age, when you were the high priest, even though Rome would kind of give you a one-year term as the high priest, you were kind of still called the high priest. It's the same reason that you would still call former presidents president. You would address them as president, right? They're still the high priest. And you'll recognize as we get into this, this kind of tension because you're like, well, what, wait, who was the high priest and what was going on and who was there? But Rome was in charge of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was supposed to be bound by no other country, no other like the, the nation of Israel the capital of that nation was supposed to be bound by no other country, but Rome now there with the Jewish people in subjugation and uh, to the will of Rome. Rome did not want anybody to take advantage of Rome, and so they would rotate the high priest's. They wouldn't let anybody be a high priest for more than a year because they just kept moving the power from person to person. That's why when you go, hey, they were at the high priest's house, and it's the high priest. Wait, Caiaphas, who's the high priest? Uh, right? It's because of that kind of rotation of Rome moving around who would actually be in charge. But it was Caiaphas, if you remember, who advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. They're having this conversation about who Jesus is, and, and Caiaphas stands up and says, hey, listen, I think it's better that he would die for everybody than everybody else, and we lose our seat we lose our status, so let's let this man die. This was earlier in Jesus's ministry. Now Simon's there, and we have denial one coming up. So Simon can't go into the courtyard, but that disciple, the other disciple, many people think this is John. The other disciple was connected relationally, and so he can go in. He has kind of the the lanyard, and can oh okay you're in you can get in. Or maybe it was the black light over the hand. I'm not sure how they knew, uh, but. They could come in, but Peter had to wait. But the other disciple who was known says, hey, you can can let him in. He's with me. But Peter waits by the fire. Now, that charcoal fire is gonna come in handy in a few, well, not more more than a few weeks. But that charcoal fire is making a, a return later in John. But Peter's warming himself. And I think John is purposefully letting us know that Peter's more concerned in this moment about his own personal warmth and comfort than he is about what's going on with Jesus. It was cold, and so there was a fire, and he's warming himself by the fire. And the servant girl, who was at the door, who let him in, just ask this question, you also were not the, this one, one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I'm not. There it is. The moment to identify, and he goes... Ugh. You know what's wrong, Pete, cat got your tongue, can't talk, can't speak, don't know what's going on. Come on, man. If I were in your shoes, I definitely would have spoken up. I would have done it. So he's over by the fire, warming himself. They let him in. You were there, weren't you? I wasn't there. That's denial one. Just being asked of his association. And interestingly, now look at this too. This This is a servant girl she didn't have power. She didn't have authority. Like in, in, this, in, this, in this moment, she's just really going, hey, you too? Are you, are you a part of that? And he's like, no, 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 no. And sometimes we like, we lie up, right? The authority above us we're scared of, and so we kind of bend the truth. But, but he's actually just, he's lying down in authority. He, just, he doesn't even want he doesn't even want this person who just let him into the room, into the courtyard, to, to know that he was connected with Jesus. And that's where it gets really silly. Because you're like, really? Because you've been to Jerusalem multiple times. We've, like, they've seen Peter with Jesus. Now, the servant girl might not have. But many in these crowds would know that there's a connection between Peter in Jesus. The dude might still have blood on his hands from the guy's ear. Like, I don't, know, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. Now, skipping to the second part of the bread, denials two and three, he's questioned until something that is spoken would be fulfilled. John 18 25. There was Peter, this is after the questioning of Jesus, there was Peter out to the side, and what's going on? Peter's warming himself by the fire, and they said to him, you also are not one of the disciples, are you? He denied it. That's the second denial. He said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative, the heat is increasing, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once the rooster crowed. So so as the heat increases, right? The servant girl, I don't know who he is. And then another uh, and then another person says, with the people who are surrounding himself, probably soldiers and others who are by the fire, hey, wait, weren't you there? I wasn't there. And then the person's like, No, 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 like, like you seriously, it's like my cousin. You chopped off my cousin's ear. I was in the crowd. I saw you do it. I don't know what you're talking about. And you know, you could just be like, "No, no, seriously, like, picker, it didn't happen." Like, show me, show me that you were, you know, that I wasn't there. Prove to me that I was there. I don't know what Peter's trying to get away with, because we know where this is, of course, headed. You're a good Bible people. You know where this is headed. But what we actually then see, even in this interaction, is what was spoken was already known by Jesus. It, it didn't catch Jesus by surprise. John chapter 13, 36, 37, 38. This is in the upper room. This is, this is just, you know, not that long before these events. John chapter 13, verse 36. Simon Peter says, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times till you have denied me three times Peter who just really the day prior is so confident in what he would be and how he would stand and rather than be confident when the moment calls what is he but cowardly he's afraid to speak He's afraid even to associate. Now, you can understand maybe the intensity of the moment where there's a mob, and that mob is there after Jesus, and they take Jesus. Jesus had just said, I'm the one you're looking for. Remember, this was last week. I'm the one you're looking for, so leave these men alone. They're not really that interested in putting Peter on trial, it doesn't seem. It's just more like, hey, you too, right? Like, were you there? You were there? No, you were, you were one of his followers, what was that like? I mean, I really, it really feels more inquisitive than we're gonna come after you with lanterns and torches and weapons like we saw last week. It's that, that doesn't seem to be the interest. It's really just, wait a minute, didn't you know him? It's the same thing that happens when you realize, like, oh, wait, are you related to that guy or that girl? Are you, are you, like, tell me what that's like. You went to that school or you had that teacher or you did this thing or, or can you, do, do you know? Like, what, what did you learn? What was that experience? It's kind of weird now that he's on, on trial, isn't it? And so it really just seems inquisitive. And even then, what does Peter do but just wilt? This isn't about us gaining a spine in this moment. It's about what Jesus does. If we think that Peter, warming himself by the charcoal fire, had the metaphorical fires hot with regard to the seriousness of the questions he's getting, we are wrong as the scene in the middle of Jesus being questioned begins, we see the contrast between how Jesus responds and stands compared to Peter. Verse 19. The high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching, and Jesus answered, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. So when asked, and they go, you tell us who you are. What does Jesus say? But you you know. Everybody's heard it. I haven't hidden these things from you, I've been in synagogues, I've been in the temple celebrating, I have taught and I have instructed, it is not as if there's this like three year shadow mission going on, and then all of a sudden it's like, hey, I'm here, right, like the night of the Passover, the day of the Passover, now I'm here and it's all going to happen, no, throughout Jesus' ministry, he is making clear who he is, and that. Actually increases as we get closer and closer. But even at Jesus' birth, there's a declaration of who He is. Even at Jesus' declaration, or a dedication in the Gospel of Luke, Anna from the tribe of Asher and Simeon speak about the Savior who has now come. There are people throughout. John the Baptist, at the beginning of his ministry, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He has been identified. People have declared things about him. He has declared things about himself. Never once has he betrayed that identity. And so when they ask him who he is, and he says, everybody knows. Ask anybody who's heard me teach. I have stayed consistent throughout. But that response was taken as an offense. Because it doesn't seem like an answer, does it? Hey, were you there? What do you think? Were you there? Ask, somebody, ask anybody who's, who saw me there. You ask them, they'll know. But in that, what he's doing is just showing that there are many who have seen him and heard him. So in verse 22, we see this. When he said these things and kind of just led with a ask anybody One of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? And they sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. We see Jesus as the faithful witness when, when questioned, he's clear on who he is. This will continue because we're going to go through multiple weeks of different people questioning Jesus and who are you and what have you done and are you the son of God and Pilate's like, look at what they say about you. Do you know the authority that I have? Do you know what I can accomplish? Do you know what I can do for you? Back and forth this conversation goes between Jewish leaders and Jesus or Roman leaders and Jesus trying to discern who he is. And every time he is clear, he though doesn't boast. He's not screaming it, but he's clear in who he is. When questioned, he makes himself clear. And when beaten, he doesn't fall back. With threat of physical violence, he still says, after being struck in the face by an officer, who's offended that he would answer the question the way that he did, Jesus says, if you find me to be in the wrong, bear witness about how I said something not true. But if, I right, there's the but, like, I am in the right? If what I do is right, if what I said is right, why do you strike me? We'll see, and you can find I, I don't know how much the stack of books and pages and articles that have existed about the trials of Jesus. Remember last week we spoke about how there's really if you wanted to summarize it, and I'm a big summarizer there's the the roman trial and there's the religious trial and both of these have specific purposes in what's going on in the ministry of jesus the roman trial was needed because crucifixion was a roman it was a roman execution it wasn't a jewish execution and a jewish execution was usually stoning and so the jewish leadership needed to convince the roman leadership that he did something wrong as a Roman leader, like, like they needed to see him wrong there so that they would execute him because their execution wouldn't have suffered. And they also want to just look, look like they're in the right. Jesus will let them know that that's not the case. But that's really what happens. There's kind of this questioning back and forth the multiple trials. And they'll talk about the witnesses and how many witnesses do you need? Let nobody be brought without the witnesses of two. All of this is going on. And you can find many who have written on how Jesus' trials were kind of sham trials. In the sense that they were just trying to prove a point to get to where they were headed. There was actually nobody who was bearing witness about anything. And that's why you see Peter or Jesus time and time again go, if anybody has anything to say against me that I actually said, bring them up. But if nobody has anything to say, why are you doing what you're doing? Now, we know the answer to that on the back end, right? Here in 2023, we can kind of look back and go, oh, well, this is what was needed We read about the suffering servant in Isaiah 53 and we recognize that that all of this was a part of what was necessary for the, the punishment that was for our sins that the Son of God took for us. All of this was a part of it. But even in this kind of micro part of the greater story, we have Jesus standing firm. Flanked on both sides in John's telling by Peter who's like a noodle. He won't say anything, except I don't know him. And so we have this, it's interesting, we have a false testimony of Peter, while we have a false testimony about Jesus right there in the middle. So Peter's not actually appealing to what is true. Jesus is appealing to what is true, but those who have him on trial are not. And why might this be? We go, oh, well, it's certainly because it's necessary. Because we have to, because we must. But here is what I think we can look at. And we're going to draw out these ideas a bit here. This is the way that I wrote it a few weeks back Jesus stands when we will not, Jesus stands when we cannot. Jesus stands when we should, but we don't. Jesus stands in our weakness. Jesus stands in our assumed strength. Jesus stands every time. When we think about our own failures and the ways in which we would have done them differently if we could get do-overs, we very often make some kind of commitment to God, like give me another shot and I won't screw it up. Give me another shot and I won't screw it up. And that's a little bit of a backwards way of thinking, though I love the intended resolve, everybody. I praise you for your resolve. But that really mistakes just how faithful Jesus is and how unfaithful we can tend to be even as his followers. And so if we make it about our level of resolve, we are going to be reducing Jesus' resolve in the process. And so we get to see Peter flanking Jesus. Peter says, I don't know who he is. Jesus says, Everybody knows who I am. While Peter's like, I don't know who he is. I don't know. You don't ask me. So, what are the ways that Jesus stands for us even now? What are the ways that Jesus stands for us even now? What are the things where we might be leaning into our own level of confidence, our own ability, our own resolve to never let that situation happen again, whatever it might be? No, next time I'm going to stand. And I do hope you get better at it, but you'll never get Jesus at it, okay? Like, so get better at it. Grow in your conviction. Grow in your confidence. Grow in your ability to communicate these truths of Scripture. Yes, all of those things. But you will never replace Jesus who never misspoke, who never waned, who never said, I just can't do it anymore. I don't know. him. Now, Now, Jesus uses this line, right? If you if you declare me or bear witness about me before others, you know, I'll, I'll mention you. And if you deny me, I'll deny you. There's kind of that exchange that we have. But here's the great thing is that if imagine applying Peter's psyche to Jesus, right? It's like, like, Jesus is like, well, I, I don't know them. They kind of, this church is embarrassing me right now. And so I'm just going to kind of not claim it as my own. This family, this disciple, I don't really like the way Hans is living right now. And so I don't claim him any longer. So often in how we view our salvation, we identify more with Peter and live kind of in that Peter world than we recognize what Jesus is doing in this moment. Our salvation is all about what Jesus has done when we could do nothing. It's about how he stood when we could not. And when we recognize it's how he stood when we could not, then we can actually stand up taller because we'll never stand as tall as Jesus. We have a level of confidence about what he's done and what he said. So for example, in your salvation, and by that I mean, because there are different kind of verb tenses with salvation, different ways scriptures talk about it, like present salvation, past salvation, future salvation. So in, your, in, in the moment of your salvation, when God saves you and you move from death to life, that's what I'm talking about right here. That is a clear moment It doesn't matter what age. It doesn't even matter exactly how much you remember it. Some people don't have these clear recollections. Some people have process stories, I get all of those. But what happens in that moment is that you realize that the confidence that you've placed in yourself isn't going to get you anywhere. The way in which you've lived, the way in which you've stood, everything you've said, all the things even Peter hits there, was like, I'll never, I'll never, I'll never, I'm on it. I'm the guy, I got this Jesus, don't you worry. We're not gonna let anybody take you, we're around you. And he knows the whole time what everybody's going to do. The whole time. He's not befuddled, confused, anxious, or worried about how his disciples are gonna scatter. In that moment of salvation, we realize that we can't stand up under the weight of our own sins We can't unburden ourselves of those things, and so what do we do? We turn, and we let Jesus stand. And we say, it's not me, Lord, it's you. You stand. You stay there, and you declare what is true. The work that you did is perfect and is sure, and I can trust it. If you're here this morning and you have never trusted in Jesus, that is the, I'll say best, I I don't have the right adjective. Wish I did. I need a thesaurus. But that moment when you can just go, you know what? I was never going to get it done in the first place. It took me 45 years to figure it out. Jesus, you stand you stand i don 't in our salvation, when we finally realize we can 't save ourselves, we let Jesus stand now we 'll use the term sanctification to 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 describe the growth that goes on while we 're here in this life, striving with the Lord and His word and His spirit, trying to understand who we are, but what often happens, especially as we 're younger in faith, but it kind of happens throughout because we all have our propensities to believe in ourselves, or hatred of ourselves, or fear of ourselves, and so we put some kind of weird confidence in the flesh, positively or negatively, when we doubt who we are, when we don't believe the things that Scripture says about us, when we feel insecure and uncomfortable, it's still not about you. The things that Jesus says about you Even later, the things that Peter himself says, chosen race, royal priesthood, a people of God's own possession, called out of darkness to walk in his marvelous light. Even those things, like those things are true not because of your wherewithal, but because of the true and sure word of Jesus that stands for you. Not because of the confidence in your own ability, but because of the work of Jesus. Here at Genesis, and if you talk to me for long, we'll talk about getting into the reading plan, get the dwell app, listen to it, be in a group, please show up for corporate worship. We like to be together, usually. Usually. We enjoy one another's presence, especially when there are donuts, right? Like like that makes everything, like we like all those things, right? But like we can have, like we could be an 8 out of 10 or a 10 out of 10 or a 15 out of 10 thinking we're just killing it on like the spiritual disciplines front. We're doing great. And you know what? It still doesn't stand for you. That work when Paul reminds us that righteousness is like filthy rags, that still it is the work of Jesus that stands. And that doesn't, when you hear that, it doesn't make me run and go hide from striving, from learning, from studying. it It doesn't have me run from any of those things. But it reminds me of where my confidence should be. It's very hard for us to remember that it is Jesus' declaration and it is Jesus' work that both saves us and sustains us. Very hard. Let's go to the word witnessing. That is one that shows up throughout, both in Peter's failure to witness his first denial in 18 or uh, in 15 there through 18 Jesus uses the word witness a lot if you look at verse 23 if what i said is wrong bear witness about the wrong but if what i said is right why do you strike me he says in verse 20 i have spoken openly to the world i have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the jews come together i've said nothing in secret Ask those who have heard me what I have said to them. They know what I've said. Declaration, 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 bearing witness, bearing witness, bearing witness. Evangelism is what? Bearing witness. Speaking of what has happened. Speaking of what is true. And what do we see in Peter? But an inability to bear witness. But let's remember, Peter doesn't live here. He actually, Peter doesn't live. He doesn't go back to his failures. Peter fails later. Do you remember Paul having to rebuke him later in life? This is after the spirit comes. This is after that powerful Pentecost speech. Like this is after everything. And Paul has to go to Peter and be like, hey, you're confusing people about what Jesus has done. You're going back to works. He still gets rebuked later. Which is just so Peter of him. But even in this, remember John, the book about bearing witness, the book about declaration, in our witnessing, in our evangelism, this month we're trying to pray for people in our lives who don't know the Lord. We ask that to continue as a fire for us as we go throughout the year, that we care a lot about people who don't know Jesus, people who are far from God, people who will not, in their own efforts, in their own minds, or in their own hearts, turn to the Lord Jesus. We care so deeply about that, and we want to care more. We want to align our hearts with God's heart for this world. In our witnessing, when we aren't sure how we will be received, what do we get to remember but how Jesus was received? How was he received? In everything and in every way, Jesus went first and went best And so when we get all bound up or concerned about how we might be viewed to talk to somebody about our Lord, when we're afraid that that might hurt our reputation, harm the way people think of us, make people laugh at us, you know what? That's what following Jesus is at times. People who are confused by you, laugh at you, mock you, think little of you, malign you, wish that you weren't in their lives. When we aren't sure how we'll be received, when we get so caught up again in how we might do, am I gonna say the wrong thing? Are Bear witness about what is true. No response that comes to you is going to be worse than what came upon Jesus. And this one As we think of the ministry of of Peter in particular and where this is headed in John 21 with the restoration of Peter. Because you got to think, I guess you don't have to, but I'm going to tell you. I think that Peter got stuck in those denials for a while. And you realize what you say and then the rooster crows and that and like and then you remember the words of Jesus and everything starts to do, 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 all the all the pins in the lock come together and you see it there's that part of you that goes, Golly, am I good enough? Is Jesus gonna take me back? Was that one too many missteps, and was that one too many failures? Was that one too many times I didn't say what I was supposed to say, where I let the joke go on, where I let that person get mocked, where I didn't say to my family member what I needed to say? Was was that one too many times where I didn't stand for truth, and instead I stood for myself, and I protected, and I preserved, because I was afraid of what happened? And we just go, how many of those do I have in my quiver before I'm out? How many times can I betray, hurt, harm, not speak up? How many times can I do that before God says, don't tell me you don't think like this, I know a lot of you, before God says, that's enough, you are out of times to fail. Even if in your head you know that that is not the case, in your heart you live as if it is, you go, I know he won't give up on me, I know he won't forsake me, I know he won't leave me, I know he won't harm me, but it feels like I should not do this anymore. It feels like I shouldn't be living like this, it feels like I should be bolder. I have met no Christian at any age in their life where they go, you know what, I really feel as if I have learned everything God had wanted me to learn up to this point in my Christian life. I've met nobody like that. I've certainly met nobody who goes, I think I've actually exceeded. If God wanted me to learn 100% of things up to this time in my life, I think I'm actually at 120%. I could not do things for the next portion of my life and still actually be okay and let it kind of get down to 90 and then I'll catch back up. Nobody does that. Every Christian I know goes, man, there's so many things I don't know, so many things I feel like I should know by now. I wish I could still know that. I mean, we're still memorizing Genesis 12, 1 through 3, and we're going like, I gotta... I feel like that one's pretty key. I feel like that one should be kind of stuck in my head by now, but it's not. A failure mentality in the Christian life is about what we bring. And what I mean by failure mentality is not that you, that you will fail, because you will, or that you won't fail, but when we live based on our failures, we're trusting in an odd way in our work and not in Christ's. When we live in the things that we didn't get right, or the times that we didn't stand up, or the times that we didn't speak what we should have spoken, then we live there. Now, because because John, or I'm sorry, Peter, is a man that uh, he has a bit of a roller coaster story. And we're going to get to chapter 21, but it's going to be in a while. I want to remind us that Peter did make that switch again. The restoration that happened, the confidence that he had, the way that Jesus said, No, I need you, Peter. I'm going to use you, Peter. One of my favorite elder passages is not 1 Timothy 3. It is not Titus 1. The qualifications are fine, but everybody uses those qualifications for any role in ministry at any time and in any way. I like 1 Peter 5. 1 Peter 5 is one of my favorite elder qualification passages because Peter kind of is like, hey, I'm like you guys, we're in this together. And so I just want to read this as we finish. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed shepherd the flock of god that is among you but listen to how he explains who he is in verse 1 of first peter 5 a fellow elder a witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed the self-flagellation of, but I, there was that time when I denied Jesus and I shouldn't have and I did the wrong thing, or there was that time when I mistook the gospel witness and I led Jewish people to believe, I was in fear that following the law is really an okay thing. There was that time. He doesn't view himself by his failures, but that's so often how we live. We live based on the bread and not on the meat. As if that's where life is lived. When we fail, Jesus is the one who still stands for us. When your family or your friends or your spouse or your coworkers say, we don't know him and we don't want him, Jesus will still say, I'll take him. I'll take him, I'll take her, I'll take them. And when we live knowing that Jesus and it's his work and it's his person, it's it's what he's stated about us that stands, then we can stand up so tall because we're standing up in him. That's how Ephesians 1 talks about it. He lifts us up, he raises us, and he seats us in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's what we get. It's not you just stay down there until you feel bad enough about what you did, like God grounded us, just until you feel bad enough, and I I need to hear you feel real bad about it but we're lifted and we're raised and we are partakers in the glory that is to be revealed. It is all there because Jesus stood, because Jesus took it, because he stood as the one perfect man for the only truth that ultimately matters for us and for our salvation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we think about who we are, we can often view ourselves as fraught with failures, cowards, afraid of being known, afraid of being identified, and that is so often who we are. But we're also men, women, and children who, by your grace, by the work of Jesus, the indwelling of your spirit, we are a new creation, And I pray for all those folks, even in this room, or who might be watching along, when they live in their failures, that they might turn to Jesus. That, that, That his witness might stand. Grant us the grace this morning to realize that, to long for that, to love that, and to stand up. Under the glorious work of Christ. And we pray it in his name. Amen. There's no better response for God's people in a time like this when we want, we even still might want to go to our failures. We even still might want to go, yeah, but yeah, just this week, you don't know. We get to go to the table. I say the table, I mean communion. We get to go to communion. This is something we at Genesis practice every week. If you're new to Genesis, every week, it is for anybody who has placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, has been changed by his grace, even when you don't feel it. And we're given a moment every week here to receive these elements. They're stacked, so in just a moment, you can come up and you can take the stack, hold on to them, and consider the work of Jesus in just a moment. Johnny will come up and lead us through the taking of the elements together, but this is what we get to do. And there's a, Every sermon, every Sunday is different, but we get to remember in these moments that, that it's not our failures that we live in, but it's Jesus' work. We live in Jesus' work, not our failures. And Jesus saw our failures coming. He wasn't surprised by them, shocked by them, stunned by them, or worried about them, because he knew what he was here to do.